people saw the $49 membership and they were attracted by that and the young fit people that they had who didn't have degrees but had the impression of the home drew my my customers away. And the biggest mistake I made was not realizing that my business model was flawed. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. If you're not already a member of our community, please go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join and receive the five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist. Second, you get my weekly investment research email to help you increase return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses. And fourth, you get instant access to the Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you'll receive my curated list of the top 10 of nearly 400 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A's Dots Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Andrew Bryant. Andrew, are you ready to rock? I certainly am. Thank you, Andrew. What a great name. <laughs> we agree. We both like each other's name. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Andrew Bryant is a global expert on self-leadership, a C-suite advisor, an award-winning coach, and best-selling author. English by birth. Australian by passport, Singapore by PR, and Brazilian by wife. Andrew is adept at moving across various cultures. Andrew is on a mission to wake people up to their best possible selves, which he does through his conference keynotes, leadership team facilitation, and coaching. He is a leadership faculty for Singapore Management University, where he also contributes to the Women in Leadership program. And he is most proud of the work he has done, building self-esteem and confidence for at-risk teenagers. Andrew, take a minute and fill me further tidbits about your life. You want me to fill you in with tidbits or go straight to my greatest problem? I think, I think the audience would like to know a little bit more about you. You know, maybe what you learned from that, you know, you talked about the experience, uh, you know, that I mentioned about that at-risk teenagers. That would be interesting to know just a little bit about you. Okay. Well, so, you know, with that impressive introduction, and thank you for that, you know, the bit that pays me the money is working with senior leaders and senior leadership teams. And one of my clients a few years ago reached out and said, we have some work for you. I was excited because as I said, it pays my bills, but they said, it's a bit different. And they said, we partnered with a charity and that this charity worked with at-risk teenagers, and we thought your lessons would be really great for the teenagers. And I thought, well, how hard can it be? I discovered it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I had to adapt the self-awareness, the self-confidence, and the self-efficacy rules that I would teach to leaders in a way that was approachable or understandable by the kids. And you know, in, embedding that in games, in improv theater, but seeing the transformation in the kids absolutely inspired me. And what was most powerful was how the work I did helped the mentors from the bank connect with the kids and then take that skill set back to the bank and transform them as leaders. And it became the bank's most powerful and effective leadership program is getting bankers to work with at-risk teenagers 
taught them to be human beings, which sounds like an impossible task. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it transformed me, realizing that, you know, a lot of what I do is very, you know, very direct. It's, it's very hardcore. And yet, you know, the humanity in, inside of that is so important. Yeah. Well, I was an at-risk teenager and I had people, whether they were just strangers along the path or whether they were, you know, working at drug rehabs and the places that I ended up in. But thank God for the different people that did give a crap at the time to spend a little bit of time with me. And it helped me to build myself or let's say rebuild myself from a hole that I was in related to drug and alcohol addiction. So, and I was thinking about that, talking with my mother just the other day, how the time that I spent with those people in drug rehabs, where I got really great support and help, just had an exponential impact on my life. Now, you know, 40 years later, I still am in touch with my counselor from that time. And the treatment center still exists. And I, you know, talk to him and I still bring the principles that, that I, you know, learn at that moment into my life all these years later. So trust me, the work that you did will live on for some of those students or some of those young teenagers that, you know, took those lessons to heart. And I think it's a a great lesson also for all of our listeners to say, there's people at risk all around us and people could use a little bit of just bring a little bit of what you've got to them and it can change them for a lifetime and it can change you for a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think legacy is not is built on a day-to-day basis. You know, with each interaction that we're having with human beings, we're, we're creating a legacy. And I've actually already had some of the positive benefits of some of the work I've done. People have come back and said, this, is, this has changed my life. Thank you. And, of course, that's incredibly validating to me as a human being. I think the lesson that I, I really learned around working with the at-risk teenagers is that they had, and I, I'm sure, well, I imagine that you might validate this too, is that, if you're an at-risk teenager, you've got the best BS detector ever. <laughs> and so there's a lot talked in corporate world about being authentic. And there's a lot talked about in coaching, be your authentic self. And I think, you know, as I, as I looked at where, you know, my early mistakes in working with the kids and, and how I, and the successes that we subsequently got was I had to peel back everything, any facade that I had and be truly authentic with these kids and tell them, you know, life can be hard, life is unfair, but, you know, nobody's necessarily going to ride in on a white horse and, and rescue you. you got to rescue yourself. Yeah. And, you know, yes, you look at me now and I might seem successful now, but I've been where you are. And, and for them to actually believe that and connect to that, it's not easy because, you know, so much of the world tells us we have to wear nice clothes and have a, mm. have a smart watch and, yeah. and put, on our best, put our best foot forwards. But people are most impressed. And I think, you know, speaking to your podcast title, people are most impressed when you can share your biggest failures and authentically say, hey, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm work in progress too, but I'm a little bit further down the track. So here, take this piece of information. It helped me. Maybe it'll help you. And what a setup for the next question. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. So, you know, one thing about me is I've always been looking for the difference that makes the difference. My first degree is in physiotherapy and I worked in hospitals for a couple of years and then I worked with sports teams 
And that speaks to the work I do now, because in sports teams, you're looking at goal setting, you're looking at winning, you're looking at, you know, training for perfection. And as a physiotherapist, initially I was looking at rehabilitating people, but then I started looking at, well, what, what sets up for peak performance. And that was in the 1980s before sports psychology had been invented, before positive psychology had been articulated. And I took that from the UK to, or that mindset from the UK to Australia. And I, I set up a chain of physiotherapy clinics. And also I had a postgraduate in acupuncture by this time. Uh, I was doing the rehab and I was also doing some sports work. And I decided that my best idea was to create you know, this holistic view between sort of the medical approach, the sports approach, and create a sort of a wellness center way before my time. And so I bought a gym and I was critical of gyms because, you know, gyms were badly managed. You know, there was a lot of myths, you know, this is how you get big or this is how you get fit. And I was going to bring science to it. And so I, you know, as a physiotherapist, I knew better. And of course, this is, you can see how I'm setting up the mistake here, right? up Because it's, it's that classic, you know, how hard can it be? Or I know more than the others, right? And so I bought a gym and I overly invested in the gym. I didn't realize that I was paying for things that I didn't need to pay for. And I hired the best human resource graduates from the local university to be the personal trainers. And I paid them a lot because I believed that that would make the difference. So I had investment in equipment. I had investment in real estate. I had investment in staff. And I was doing a service-based health and wellness approach. And at that time, it worked for just a little while. But then the fitness craze hit Australia and the low-cost gyms set up and they weren't selling service, they were selling hope. Where I was charging $49 a month for a subscription, they were charging $49 a year because mm. they were selling memberships, they weren't selling service. Right. And so, and people saw the $49 membership and they were attracted by that and the young fit people that they had who didn't have degrees but had the impression of the hope drew my, my customers away. And the biggest mistake I made was not realizing that my business model was flawed. And I started investing more money and more money until my houses, my cars, my savings had all been poured into a black hole that I ended up almost up having to pay somebody to take off my hands. And that was my worst investment ever. <clears throat> and can you remember the moment when you kind of realize, holy crap, this is not going to work? You know, that's a great question because it was a number of years ago, right? So it was back in the 90s. And, mm. you know, it amazes me now to realize how long it took me because you think, well, if I just throw some more money at this, I just, I run a promotion. It just, I don't know. I just, you know, my bank, you know, when there was just no more money in the bank, mm. I went, well, you know, this pattern cannot continue because yep. I am literally running on fumes now. Yeah. And I just went, I have to get out. Yeah. Wow. And, and then when I couldn't sell it, you know, nobody else was stupid enough to have the same belief that I had. So yeah. I think it was, what is amazing to me was it was a slow realization. Right. And you seem like a very direct, aware kind of guy nowadays that that wouldn't happen now. But yeah, when you're younger, it's harder. So tell us what lessons did you learn from this experience? Well, I, I think now, you know, 20 plus years, 25 years later, you know, realizing, you know, working with 
agile mindsets, minimum viable product, test something first, have somebody to argue against your proposition. I didn't take anybody else's advice. I didn't actually float my idea to anybody else because I was just so right. Have, you know, one of the things I, I coach my CEOs on is if you have a brilliant idea, right, spend half an hour arguing against your own idea like a, a mini debate, right? Pick holes in your own idea. So having trusted people around you to go, hey, love your passion. Just tell me how this is going to work again. Hmm. right? Tell me what the business model is. Tell me where the scalability is. Tell me whether this would work if you weren't in the mix, right? Because hmm. I think the real understanding, you know, I understood I'd come from a, a practitioner mindset, having been a physiotherapist. And, you know, I was always part of the program. Physiotherapy without a physiotherapist just doesn't exist. But now we see businesses that operate and scale without mm. the founder. Yep. And interestingly, I often coach founders who need to step down as the CEO because they no longer can take the business to the next level because mm. they have put themselves too much in the mix. So, yeah, how does it work without you is a good question. Yep. In 1999, sorry, 2019, yep. was, was the crucial year that that all went pear-shaped. But in 2019, I gave a speech at the Asia Professional Speakers Conference where I said, you know, speaking will be disrupted and you need to have a business model where you don't have to walk out on a stage. And that was 12 months before the pandemic mm. wiped out the speaking industry completely where nobody <laughs> could travel or stand on a stage and, and give mm. a speech. So yep. I was somewhat prescient this time around. By this time, I had online programs and scalable products that, right. that allowed me to survive the pandemic shutdown on conferences. Yep. Well, let me share a few things that I take away from your story. First thing I take away, I've, I've written down four things. The first thing is industry dynamics. And as a, as a financial analyst looking at investments where you can get in and out of any stock because it's trading in the market, you have the opportunity to look at the dynamics of an industry. And when a low-cost leader comes into an industry, they can wipe out everybody. Now, Thailand had the exact same thing. We had a company called California Fitness, later became California Wow. They cut prices. They sold hope, as you said. And they, they basically wiped out. They destroyed the industry as much as they could. And then they went bankrupt. Not fair. Not, you know, everybody kind of loses. And they listed in the stock market also. So, you know, investors lost, everybody lost. But the point is, is that sometimes you can't swim against the tide. And when that tide comes, if you can see, if you can just keep your eyes open, if it's a, if it's a big change in that industry, sometimes it makes sense just to exit. The second thing is, what does the customer want versus need? You know, you were delivering what you thought the customer really needed. But all the customer really wanted was just some hope, right? And they started selling to that hope. And it's just a really tough question because, you know, okay, do you run a business just, just filling people's wants? You know, that's a challenge. That, that's a question that, that I, I, I don't have an answer to. The third point is that there was a time with our coffee business in Thailand, Coffee Works, where we were debating about whether we were going to be able to survive many years ago. And, you know, we were in a position where, Part of the, the decision about that was who would buy our factory. There was no buyers. And the value that we put into it was, you know, 
not nearly what we thought we would you know end up getting from it so it means that it's hard to go back and it's hard to go forward sometimes like we knew we didn't have the cash to hire the salespeople we need but we knew we couldn't sell the assets so we were just kind of stuck so i say sometimes small business can be a trap and um there was another one but i can't read my writing now so it's going to come oh i know what it was i know what it was the management team of the coffee business, we were at a, a social club that we use for interviewing people. And the management team of the coffee business was in one conference room and they had two candidates to interview. And they interviewed, it was already had gone through a lot of interviews. So this was the final one. They faced the management team and it was like an hour, maybe two hours. And then I was waiting upstairs as shareholder, director, just kind of a third outside party because I'm not a manager in the company. So after they were finished, they sent that person upstairs. The two of them came up one at a time after they were finished with being grilled by the management team. And I just said to them, nice to meet you and everything. I just you know, wanted to talk about, you know, this isn't going to work. We don't have the budget. You know, we don't have the brand. We don't have a big team. This is going to be super hard. And I just went at them like every reason why you shouldn't take this job. And it was very odd for them to get this, you know, from who's supposed to be hiring them. And I said, I'd just like to write down some of the reasons why you won't, you know, be successful. And I said, you know, one of them is we just don't have budget to build out a brand the way you used to work at this company. And then the first guy, you know, he and I started making this list of all the things that could go wrong. And I'd seen a lot of things go wrong in the past. And then the next guy came and I said the same thing. And he says, well, my last job didn't have a budget. You know, we didn't have nothing. And he said, and then I said, well, we don't really have the brand. He said, well, your brand's pretty good compared to what this was. And, you know, it was just an interesting difference in the way those two people handled it. But it was the idea of challenging your idea. So those are my four things that I take away. There's a lot of lot in what you share, but anything you would add to that? No, I think you've you've analyzed it very well. And I think, you know, understanding how to get in and out of a business. I had never considered an exit plan. Mm. And if you don't have an exit plan, you don't have a business. You've just bought yourself a job. And a lot of small business owners are stuck in that mindset that they bought themselves a job. Mm. It doesn't mean you have to sell it, but if you haven't set it up that it's saleable, it isn't a business. And that's just hardcore reality that a lot of people cannot even accept. Wow. That's fantastic. And you know, for the listeners out there, for your own business, you know, I'll just tell a short story of a business that I advised and we ended up selling the business to Microsoft in this case. It was a software development business. And the owner of the business, the founder of the business, knew from almost day one that he was going to sell to Microsoft. He just said that. And then he, every action that he took, the healthcare conferences he went to, he went to meet the Microsoft folks, tell them what he's doing. He just everything. And it made me realize like for any startup business or business operator listening to this, who are you going to sell your business to? And if you go through that exercise, it really helps focus the mind because the second piece of advice I always say is, you know, people say then, okay, how do I get a high price for my business? I said, my first advice is double your salary. And the reason being is that most small businesses understate the salary. So if someone wants to come in and buy it, they say, well, come on, you're not even at market prices. So I can't, you know, I'm not going to make the profit you think you're going to make. So those are some last little things I'd add. Anything you'd add to that? No, I think we've, I think we've covered off. I mean, it's mm. painful enough to go back to that. It's painful. Jeez, <laughs> Andrew, you make me go through it. 
All right. We're going to lift off then for the listeners out there who are in the same situation based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think going through that strategy that we've just done, I mean, if somebody's listening to this and they're in the stuck phase, what I would say to you is this too shall pass. I mean, the, you know, it's the sunk capital problem is that mm. they go, well, I've invested this time, this effort. One of the things that I always believe is that sun capital doesn't evaluate the learning. I make a lot of money these days from the lessons that I have learned, hmm. the wisdom that I have made from my mistakes. So as a coach, I'm bringing out the best in others. As a C-suite advisor, you know, people hire me over and above a coach because I have the life experience and that I can say, okay, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let me give you some things that you need to look at. And let me give you some examples from other people who've been in the same situation and some strategies that they took. And so everything that you're going through right now actually is a learning is commercial. And, you know, how do you commercialize ideas? How do you commercialize experience, right? You know, what do they say? You know, you're not completely useless. You can stand as an example to others. So your failure, I've, I've made money out of my failure because it makes a great story. I gave uh, in 2016, my, my story of losing everything became the subject of a, a TEDx talk I did. Mm. And obviously you don't get paid for doing a TED, but you, you know, off the back of that, I booked a whole bunch of speeches for yep. people who said, well, your story was inspirational. Yep. So, yep. you know, the takeaway is you may not have it in bricks and mortar, or you may not have it in money in the bank, but as long as you have been able to articulate it as a lesson and you can share that lesson, then you haven't lost the money or you haven't lost the value. And I think that's, you know, and as a as kudos to you and your, your podcast, that's what you're doing here is turning mistakes into lessons and lessons into value. Fantastic. And I think we're going to keep that on the show. Sunk cost doesn't account for the learning. That's a great, great quote. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I'm moving countries. I'm moving from Singapore to Portugal. So I'm busy packing right now. People say, why Portugal? Well, I say it's double the lifestyle for half the cost. Because, so, you know, I've been in, here in Singapore for 18 years. Great country. It's been fabulous to me, but it is very expensive. And I was here because of Changi Airport and my ability to fly around the world from here. Now that's not as important. I'm 90% of my work is in the US and I'm doing that virtually from here. So I will continue to do that. But from my base in Portugal, where I can uh, walk to the beach, drink cheap wine and great food at the same time as adding value to my clients. So it's a win-win or, you know, I think me living the dream can be just as inspirational. Yes. We like, we like hearing that. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listeners, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community where you gain the five free benefits I mentioned earlier. Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join us. As we conclude, Andrew, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Oh, wow. Well, thank you for the, the alumni. I didn't need the validation. 
And I think one should never seek validation, but it's always nice to get validation. So thanks very much for that. (laughs) Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.